Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so um, moved by how much you bless us and how much, Lord, you just lavish your grace upon us, that we would even have one another, so that, Lord, in the Christian life, we are in fellowship with you and with your people, those who have trusted in Jesus. Thank you for the fellowship that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ and for the opportunity to worship corporately this way. Father, as we open up your holy scripture, we know that we tread on holy ground. We know that every time we open up your your holy word, you speak. Father, help me to be clear. Help me to be a man who preaches with conviction, with courage, with clarity. Help me, Lord, to preach compellingly so that my brethren would be helped and that they would be driven to apply your word in their thoughts, in their view of you their attitudes, their pursuits, their priorities in life. Father, help us all to uphold these truths so that your church would be established and that Jesus would be magnified and we would display your gospel here on this earth as we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of your calling and be the church that you've called us to be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I want to read these verses. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The Lord bless the reading of his word. We've been doing this series titled Christ-Like Shepherds. This is part three of that particular series, just looking at the qualifications for the man who is to lead in God's church. As you know, Paul left his trusted uh, companion, uh, Titus, um, on the island of Crete to help establish the churches there. And at the top of that list of things that he was to set in order and help these churches do was appoint elders who are qualified elders qualified leaders in these churches. Now, we don't know the exact process or methods that they use to appoint leaders. I think there's some freedom and flexibility with that, with with each particular church. But we know some things from the New Testament about um, how um, elders are ultimately appointed that we might be able to glean from. For instance, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul addresses himself to the Ephesian elders, he, he instructs them and exhorts them to shepherd the church of God, which the Holy, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so there is this reality that elders, ultimately, we must never forget, are moved and compelled from within by the Holy Spirit to pursue leadership in the church. There is that great component And so really, when you think about the church's involvement, we are only acknowledging and affirming what the Lord has been doing in the heart of a man in the church who is qualified to be leading in the church, affirming those desires that the Holy Spirit has already begun to put in that man. 
But the church also affirms those desires because the church visibly, the people of God, are able to attest to the man's uh, um, shepherding pursuits in the, in the life of the church. That is, that this man, if he is really moved by the Holy Spirit from within to be pursuing shepherding and eldership in a church, you should see in the life of this man that this man is a man who cares for people and pursues people and wants to shepherd people. You should see him invested into people, discipling people, seeking to edify the saints with his gifting. And that's the other thing. There is a sense in which um, when we're looking for elders in a church, we are looking for men who are gifted, particularly in the area of, of teaching. Men who know the Word of God, men who desire to teach the Word of God, and men who are able to properly and effectively and accurately and in a compelling and practical manner uh, communicate the Word of God. So there's that gifting component. And we're going to see that next week in chapter 1, verse 9, in a message that I've titled for next Sunday, Men of the Book. That elders are to be men of the book. But the most important thing that must be true and that we've been seeing is that this man must be a man who is a man of character, a man of maturity. We've been looking at these qualifications for this man who is to lead in the church, and we've been seeing that he must be a man who, who has a right relationship with his family. He's above reproach with, in relation to his family. He must be a man who's devoted to his wife, faithful to his wife from the heart, onto his conduct, and also his children must be children who are under control, who are under parental authority. And we've been secondly seeing the man's relationship to himself, that he is a man of mature character. We saw the negative characteristics in verse 7. If you look there, that the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He must not be self-willed, not be quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. But he must be, verse 8, as we will see today, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. He must be a man characterized by these things. And this is a must. The Word of God says that he must be above reproach and he must be these qualities. Otherwise, he's not fit to lead in the church. Now, as I've been thinking about this and interacting with some of you, I think it's very important when we talk about this issue of character that we put character and the pursuit of character in its right framework. There is a difference between a worldly pursuit of character and what we are talking about here in terms of a godly pursuit of character in the man of God. And really for all of us, there is a difference When we talk about character, as we are opening up the Word of God here, we are not talking about character, the pursuit of character, for the purpose of self-exaltation or for the purpose of selfish ambition. The world is characterized by people who might proudly look at their character and point others to their character and say, look at my character, or perhaps look at how humanitarian I am and how good I am and look at all the good that I do and how much I give to people. They might do this, uh, cultivate character for prideful reasons like that, for notoriety or or popularity, or maybe you want to pursue a promotion in a job setting, so you try try to be a a man who matches a particular type of character. You might want to achieve a particular status before the world or, or, or prestige in the eyes of the world or accolades in the eyes of the world. But you're not doing it to glorify Christ. For believers, beloved, we pursue this character 
not because this earns us favor with God in some capacity or another, but because we want to glorify Christ. I don't know about you, but looking back at my own life testimony, I was a pretty externally moral guy, moral kid, and then teenager. The Lord saved me at the age of 17. And when people would ask me about, hey, how come you don't drink and you don't do all of these things that all of the other kids are doing? I would often say, well, I just don't think it's right. Or I don't think it's, it's what I should be doing. Or perhaps um, I did it because I wanted people to look at me in a particular way and give me credit. But I would not have told you that I didn't do those things because I wanted to glorify God. I did it for self. Self-exaltation and selfish ambition, you see. We do things and we pursue Christ-like virtue for the glory of Jesus. That's why we do this. We are also not talking about moralism here. We're not talking about moralism as if this character, either A, if you pursue it, makes you right with God somehow. As if the pursuit or the, and the attaining of this character saves you somehow. We know that it is not by works of righteousness that we are saved. There's nothing that we can do for the standard is perfection. And the only perfect one was the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves, namely the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection to be imputed, accounted to us if we are to be accepted before God. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. And even if you achieve from your own standpoint, these particular qualities, you're not, this is not what saves you, you understand. Only faith in Christ alone saves you. Trusting in his death and resurrection saves you. Or on the other hand, for those of us who are Christians, this is not character as if this character contributes or adds something to God's ongoing love for you or his acceptance of you, you see. Oftentimes we can think that way as believers. Oh, if I'm just this type of person, then God will love me more as his, as his child. Beloved, listen, God cannot love you any more than he's already loved you in putting his son on the cross to die for your sins, you understand. He gives you everything through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so pursuing this character um, is, not, is not going to make you any more acceptable before God or him loving you any more. You know, Paul... In Philippians chapter 3, wrote about the fact that he had achieved many credentials and achievements and accolades in in the Pharisaical religion that he was a part of. He was the cream of the crop, if you will. But he, looking back now in chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians, says this concerning those things that he pursued, those achievements. He says in Philippians 3, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, and those things are his credentials, his achievements in the flesh, his works. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. As he looked back at his own life journey, he could say, All of those things are nothing. I thought that I was, that I was uh, achieving assets. But now that I've met Christ, those things are nothing. There was nothing in my bank account as far as works. It only matters that now I know Jesus and that he saved me, you understand. And then he thinks about his present life. He says, more than that, verse 8, I count present tense all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. 
And I may be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now as he thinks about the future, what is it that matters to Paul? He says in verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's all that mattered to Paul. Past, present, future, it was all about Jesus. It didn't matter what achievements or credentials he had attained. They were nothing. His bank account said zero, zilch, with regards to acceptance before a holy God. It was all about Christ and his righteousness, uh, uh, counted to to Paul's account, you see. What a beautiful reminder to us then. That as we pursue virtue, beloved, there is nothing that we could do to earn God's favor or that he would love us any more than he's already loved us in Jesus Christ. Put it in its right framework. Put it in its right framework as you pursue this Christian character. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, says Paul in Galatians 5.1. Keep standing firm in that freedom, he says. It isn't Christ plus something. It's Christ plus nothing by which we might be saved. There's nothing that we can do. So it is not for selfish ambition. It is not moralism as if you're made right with God by pursuing these character qualities or as if you're a believer, as if you're adding something to God's ongoing love for you. Also, along these lines, we are not talking about character, which is accomplished, listen, by our own efforts alone, even as believers. It isn't that we kind of Um, live by our own moral bootstraps, if you will. In the great doctrine of justification, we know that God declares us righteous and we have a status of righteous by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We do nothing, nothing, nothing to earn God's favor. It is by faith in Jesus alone. But in sanctification, we are called to actively and aggressively pursue Christ-likeness. But listen to me, beloved. The only reason it is possible for you to walk in loving obedience to the Lord is because God's Spirit comes to indwell every Christian and empowers you and enables you to lovingly obey God's Word. He empowers you. So God's grace makes possible, if I could put it this way, makes possible and propels you to live the godly conduct that God has called you to. Isn't that what Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says? On the heels of the instructions to various members to walk in holy conduct, he says, chapter 2 verse 11, why are you to walk in this holy conduct? For the grace of God has appeared. And we know in whom? In Jesus, the Son of God. God's grace is shown in Christ. It has appeared bringing salvation to all men. But then he says, that same grace, verse 12, instructs us or disciples us, if you want to put it this way, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who gave himself for you and I to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God's grace saves us. God's grace sustains us and empowers us and teaches us to put off fleshly lusts and sin and put on Christ's likeness. And God's grace allows us to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, you see, to endure in the Christian life. So we do not pursue character, beloved, even in our own efforts. We are empowered by the Spirit of God, enabled by the grace 
of God. This is so important. As we continue to look at the Christ-like character of elders in the church and the type of character really that all of us should follow as well, we need to remember that we, we're not for God's saving, enabling, and sustaining grace, beloved. We cannot do anything. Anything. That's why Jesus said, abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing, you see. Abide in me. And I guess I say these things by way of encouragement to us and to remind us that because God's Spirit works mightily in us, then it is possible, beloved, to be this kind of man, to be this kind of person. Otherwise, the instructions in the Word of God would not be given to us if it was impossible to obey them. But we are people that rely upon the grace of God. So you can't throw your hands up in the air with this false sense of humility and say, well, I don't know if I could ever be that guy. I don't know if I could ever be that person. I don't know if I could ever be that Christ-like. Listen, the truth is, you are right. You can't. You can't in your own strength. But by the grace of God, you can. By exposing yourself to the Word of God, then the Spirit of God opens your eyes to God's Word illumines you and you're enabled to become more and more like Jesus as you submit to the word of God in loving obedience. So it is possible, beloved. It is possible. And when we fail, and you and I know we will, what a reminder to us of our daily need of God's grace. Amen? That we need his forgiveness in Christ to reassure us of his love and our daily renewal to be walking in loving obedience to him. We need that every single day, beloved. That's why every day you should be reminded and preach the gospel to yourself, focused on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in your place for your sins, you see. So that you've been forgiven past, present, and future. And that doesn't give you a license to sin. No, it propels you to live by grace and loving obedience to the Lord, you see. What comfort that should bring to us. Well, well, last week we examined the five vices and to reject for the man who is to lead in the church. And now we want to look at the six virtues that he must exemplify, which really show whether this man is above reproach or not and fit to lead in the church. The Christian life isn't just about putting off sin, but also about putting on Christ-like character. And so here are these six virtues that the man of God must exemplify if he is to be fit and qualified to lead in the church. Notice, He must not, in verse 7, be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. But now positively, in verse 8, he is to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. He must not be known by those negative qualities, but be known for these positive ones. And the first one is hospitable. He must be a man known as a hospitable man. And we need to be so careful because we have baggage when we think about hospitality and what it means to be hospitable. We often get images in our head of just having people generally in our homes. But hospitality is more than that. Literally, it refers to a friend or a lover of strangers. It is really referring to a mindset that is practiced then. A a disposition that we have of a welcoming spirit towards others. It is a possessing an open heart, if you want to put it this way, an open heart and home toward those who are not connected to you, toward those who maybe don't have the means to repay you, maybe those who who may not reciprocate your kindness. 
The elder is to be known as a, as a man who has a mindset of, of open-heartedness towards people to such an extent that he welcomes people even into his own home, even those whom he might not be very familiar with. In ancient times, in that context, it was very customary for residents to invite travelers into their home, strangers or sojourners into their home, and, and to display kindness toward them, to feed people, to provide shelter for them, to love on them. And to, to express kindness, exhibit kindness like this, was viewed not, not as, a, as a burden. It was, it was an obligation. They viewed it that way. But it was also a privilege for people to do that. They, they invited people into their homes because they understood the blessing of being able to do that, to practice hospitality toward others. And so it is that the church should be the same, beloved. Leaders at the top of the list should be the, the kind of men who, who help cultivate a culture and atmosphere of a, of a welcoming environment into their hearts and lives. But all of us, as we're going to see as a church, are to be about that. We ought to be hospitable people. And I know that you realize that this is very hard, isn't it? In a culture where we're so privatized, we're so individualistic here in America, it's all about our rights it's all about what we get out of things, and we import that mentality into the church many times, and that's how we operate. Unless people are family, or they are people that we know, we're very reluctant or even afraid of inviting people into our lives, let alone into our homes, lest they see the messes in our homes, right? We end up either living as hermits or inviting just people that we're comfortable and familiar with into our homes. Now listen, let me say this. It is expected, beloved, that some of you who have been around the church for a long, long time, for many, many years and decades, that you're naturally going to have connections with certain people in the church. That is natural and logical and good, and it is to be, to be encouraged that you have those connections. But listen to me. As Christians, we who are now a family in Christ, we're to show hospitality toward people we may not have a lot in common with, except for the fact that we are followers in Jesus Christ. And so if you have a click, there is a sanctified click that you can have by keeping the doors wide open to your click so that others are invited into your family, if you will. See, we are to show love for everybody that comes into the church, for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, who, who also locate their identity in Jesus, not in the other things of life that are secondary. In case you think that there's no substance or theological grounding or basis for this, for the practice of hospitality, I want to remind you that there is. The church of Jesus, beginning with her leaders, is to display the heart and love of the Savior that they have seen and witnessed in their own lives. Let me expand upon that. Prior to being saved, each of us, think about it, we were strangers and outcasts, unlovely, without hope and without God in the world, unwanted. That was me. But Jesus visited me, died for my sins, invited me into fellowship with his heavenly father. He has invited me to be a part of his family. I have fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus his Son and with you as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the theological undergirding of us then fleshing out hospitality and a welcoming spirit towards brothers and sisters in Christ as well. We have been adopted into God's family, if you will. 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. 
God, by His love, has adopted us into His family. We are His children, beloved. We have been welcomed into His family, into His home, if you will, by trusting in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but as part of His family, we have an inheritance with God by faith in Jesus Jesus spoke of this inheritance to his disciples in the upper room and to future disciples. And he said this in John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he said this, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. What love of the Father, isn't it? That not only are we saved, but we have an inheritance. And we have our tasting of the goodness of God welcoming us into fellowship in this lifetime. And for eternity we will dwell with Him forever and ever, beloved. We who have trusted in Jesus are no longer outcasts and strangers, but children, heirs with Jesus, welcomed into his very life. And so you see, the more that we understand as God's people, God's love for us, his inviting us into fellowship with him, the the more we're driven, beginning with leaders in the church, to have this mindset of loving hospitality toward one another so that there is a a culture and an atmosphere in our church, whether corporately or when we are are, uh, going about our business during the week of, of hospitality and loving, welcoming spirit towards one another, you see. Because we understand God's love for us. The more we understand his acceptance of us, the more we fold strangers into our hearts and lives, beginning with the church of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, says that this ought to be something that is true of every believer. Paul, writing to believers there, says that they ought to be contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality, literally chasing hospitality. This active, sacrificial effort that we are to be making as believers, not just as leaders in the church, but the whole church is to follow the example of leadership and to be practicing hospitality, chasing it, because it doesn't come natural to us to think of others, you see. Let alone have people in our homes. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. How? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners. And I think he's he's speaking here of the persecuted church, if you will. The prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourself also are in the body. Why are they to practice hospitality? Why are they to be mindful of other believers, maybe not even in their own context, who are being persecuted? Because you yourselves are also in the body. There is a theological undergirding there. Again, we are one in Christ in fellowship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we love one another and we have a welcoming spirit towards one another. So this is to be true of the man who is to lead in the church first and foremost. And so it is to be in the church, beloved, as a culture. Secondly, notice in verse 8, he is to be a lover of what is good. Loving what is good. Two words here. Phileo, which is the word love, or one of the words for love. And agathos, which refers to good, or that which is intrinsically good and beneficial. This man literally is a lover of good. He is a man who is, first of all, committed to doing good in his own life. And surrounds himself with those who do good. 
If I can put it this way, he's a, he's a man who delights in seeing people practice goodness towards one another who are devoted to good deeds. All it takes is a casual reading of the letter in the book of Titus, if some of you have already done it, to notice the huge emphasis on the fact that the people of God, Christians, the Christian church is to be devoted to doing good deeds, to doing good for people. Not for the purpose of earning favor with God or for the purpose of achieving salvation or for the purpose of achieving forgiveness of sins. Only by faith in Christ can we be forgiven or for the purpose of a right standing with God. But in light of God's saving grace in your life as a believer, you are to be doing good works and being devoted to good deeds. Not only personally, but collectively as the body of Christ. In fact, one of the, one, um, on the negative side, false teachers are distinguished from the true ones in that false teachers are worthless for any good deed. Chapter 1, verse 16. They are worthless for any good deed. Not so with the church of Christ. Not so. We are to be devoted to good deeds. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older women are to be devoted to doing good, which fleshes itself out in the way that they minister to younger women in the church. Which by implication, they are being taught to do what is good as well. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, Titus urged the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. In, with, in, with purity and doctrine dignified. Chapter 2, verse 14. We've seen this. That God's saving grace. And Jesus giving himself for us, chapter 2, verse 14, to, is to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. N- listen to this. Zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1. What about with relation to our society and our governing authorities? Rather than complaining and grumbling about things not being the way that we think from our own human standpoint that they should be, what is our responsibility? Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers. Remind them, believers, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. That is our responsibility before our society, to devote ourselves to doing what is good Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Chapter 3, verse 14. Our people, Christians, believers, Titus, must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Huge focus in the letter of Titus that while we are not saved by our works, we are saved unto good works so that we display the transforming power of the gospel in our society. Galatians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 says, So then, as you have opportunity, believers, let us do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So God's people, beloved, beginning with leaders, 
having experienced God's saving grace, should be people known for good deeds. You know, over the years here, I have been so encouraged by our elders. And one thing in particular has been very evident to me that in addition to them teaching in various capacities, small groups or whatever context, and and praying for you or doing counseling, I have seen elders at different times as I've shown up to events such as helping somebody move or cleaning the kitchen of the church or helping somebody do handiwork in their home. I have been multiple times in places where elders behind the scenes have served people. And you will never know it. But they've met needs, the needs of people. Cleaning, serving, helping people move, doing these kinds of things behind the scenes. And you know what that tells me? That there are men who have served in the past and in the present and the prayers that we would have men serving this way into the future who understand that ultimately an elder is not a highly lofty, uh, exalted individual. We are servants just like you are. We are servants. Deacons are servants as well. You, the laity, are servants as well. All of us are under this category of servants under the chief shepherd. We serve Christ and serve his people. Except that our particular function is we serve Christ by being, by functioning as the shepherds of the church. Deacons serve Christ by functioning with, as focusing on and facilitating the care of physical needs in the church. You serve Christ by practicing the one another's and using your gifts to serve one another. We're all servants, beloved. That's what we are. And we're all to be committed to doing what is intrinsically beneficial for others in the body and meeting needs you understand. Devoted to doing good. And there is nothing that gives me joy as a shepherd. And I can tell you that we've discussed this many times as elders in elders meetings. Just sharing the encouraging stories of people in the flock, some of you in here, caring for one another's needs. There's nothing that gives us more joy and we rejoice in than seeing the church abound in good works toward one another in the meeting of needs, beloved. So I say excel still more. Apply the word of God by doing good for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Who cares if you get any credit? You're not supposed to be doing it for credit, you see. It's for the glory of Christ. By implication, I think, the fact that this man is a lover of what is good also means by implication that he is a holy man who hates evil and who hates dead works, both in his own life and in the lives of others. And and why is that? That the elder is to be a lover of good and a hater of evil by implication because sin brings pain and hurt, you see. And the last thing that shepherds in the church want to see is people doing evil to one another and gossiping about one another and slandering one another and there being division and irreconciled relationships in the church and people's needs not being met or some being indifferent to others in the church. The last thing that elders want to see and shepherds want to see in the church is people doing evil toward one another by commission or omission. Why? Why? Because elders are motivated by God's kind of love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. True love does not rejoice in what is sinful, but what is consistent with the truth of the word of God. And so elders rejoice when there is a hatred of evil growing in the people of God and a love of what is good and delighting in serving one another and serving one and meeting one another's needs, beloved. That begins with the example of us as leaders, beginning with me. Verse 8, they are to be sensible, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible. This is a compound word which refers to, a good translation would be a saved mind. 
a saved mind. Here is the man who has the ability by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God to control his mind, to control his thoughts and his desires and to align them in accordance with the Word of God. Here is a man who is informed by truth, by the Word of God, so much so that he's not driven by his feelings and emotions and makes decisions based upon those things. He's not driven by his emotions or feelings in such a way that, he, that those cloud his thinking and dictate his decisions and his priorities in life and ministry. You might say that this is a sober-minded individual. This is a man who is a clear thinker, but he can only think clearly because he's saturated with the Word of God. His mind is filled with the Word of God, and thus he understands God's priorities. He is not running around aimless, fixated on the trivial, the earthly, the mundane. He is not known as a, as a boomerang leader or a, or a man who is a boomerang. One minute he's, in, he's going this way and the man, next minute he's going the opposite direction and you, you never know where he's headed. He has a disciplined mind and therefore he, has right, he knows how to rightly order his priorities and distinguish between what is, what is good and what is best, if you will. How important is this quality of being sensible? Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. Then chapter 2, verse 5. Older women are to teach the younger women to be, verse 5, sensible, pure workers at home, which implies that older women are to be sensible themselves. Is they going to be teaching the younger women to be sensible? Chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men, Titus, to be sensible. Right? And Titus is to model that for the young men. So this is really, uh, this applies to the whole church, not just elders. Think about this. Formerly as an unsaved non-Christian, you were, you were driven and controlled by your sinful desires and, and our sinful passions and impulses, beloved. But now, as we grow and mature in Christ, we are to submit ourselves no longer to the great master called sin, or our fleshly desires, but to the Lordship of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from every lawless deed and purify us for His own possession, people who are zealous for good deeds, as Paul puts it in chapter 3 and verse 14. We are no longer servants of our own fleshly desires, walking in the futility of our mind, being darkened in our understanding. Now we are renewing our mind by the Word of God, Romans 12, 1-2. So that we are thinking God's thoughts after Him, and therefore we are pursuing the right kinds of priorities. Well, who should this be true of more than any, more than anyone in the church? It should be true of leaders in the church, elders, who are to have rightly ordered priorities because they have a disciplined mind. They're clear-headed. They're filling their minds with the Word of God, and they understand where they need to head and where the church needs to head. And so, therefore, the, therefore the church has confidence in following men like this. You understand. Look at verse 8. He is to be a just man. A just man or righteous. A righteous man. Dikaios is the word here. We know on the one hand that we have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. We have the status of, of righteous as we have the righteousness of Christ imputed or reckoned to our account. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the conduct which is, which is an overflow of that status that we have. The conduct, the righteous conduct which honors God in light of saving grace in our lives. The conduct that pleases God, that God approves of from within manifesting itself externally. 
God's saving grace teaches us his righteous conduct, doesn't it? Titus 2, 11 through 14, that is the theme passage, by the way, in the book of Titus. That this grace instructs us and teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present world. The man who has to lead in the church understands that God's grace is never, 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 ever, ever, ever licensed to sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7. Should we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? That is the mentality of an elder and of every believer. That because of God's saving grace in our lives, we put a high importance and high value on our obedience. So we seek to, to walk in loving obedience to the Lord, manifesting the righteous conduct that he approves of in light of our righteous standing. This quality of just or righteous, however, also has reference to how elders deal with people. To reasonable Fair, honest, and just dealings with others, flowing from a heart of of integrity and righteousness, this is the man who understands how to deal with people justly and fairly and honestly and with integrity. Why is he able to do that? How can he understand what is just in his dealings with the flock if he is not a man who is saturating his mind with the Word of God? If he is not a man, as we will look next week, who is a man of the book, a man of the Word, For it is in the word of God that his mind is renewed by the truth of the word of God so that God's law is what determines his sense of right and wrong and not his opinions. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what any elder thinks. It only matters what the word of God says, right? And at the end of the day, beloved, it doesn't matter what you think and what your opinions are about a particular issue. It only matters what God says in his word. And we are called to that kind of righteous conduct as revealed in the word of God and even as we deal with one another. And how we love one another. Verse 8, closely related to just, is that he is to be a devout man. A devout man. The word on the one hand signifies that he is a holy man. A man free of moral stain or moral defilement. He is a, a man who walks in purity. On the other hand, he is also devoted to God and what is important to God. You might say that he is a man, the man who is to lead in the church is a man devoted to God, consecrated to God, set apart to God and for God's people as a shepherd of God's people, which means that he's not easily distracted again by the trivial or peripheral secondary matters of life, constantly tossed to and fro by every pursuit and priority, not of eternal value. I have met men heartbroken, who have shared how their elders and their, and their elder team or even deacons in certain contexts that are just so, their minds are completely and totally not devoted to the church. They're nice guys and do some good things for the church, but they're not devoted to the church. They're not devoted to the shepherding task. They don't give themselves over for shepherding the people of God. It's boring to them. It's a burden to them. Well, such men are not to be elders, you see. And it leads to problems in churches when men who don't have a desire to do the work are in eldership. Listen, if you're afraid of doing the work or afraid of how much time it's going to take you, then don't ever be an elder. Don't be an elder. 
Because shepherding people takes work. It's not a quick fix, such as parenting. You might parent, and your philosophy of parenting might be just to sit your kid down and in a minute, tell them what is right or wrong, and then tell them to go to their room. You could parent that way if you want. See how that goes, right? But in the church, if you shepherd people that way, you will have issues, major issues. Because shepherding is work, hard work, and it takes time. It's lives that you're dealing with, you see. And you ought to be devoted to the Lord's work, completely sold out for shepherding your family and shepherding the church of God. Otherwise, you don't belong on the eldership. And you shouldn't pursue eldership. Just to get your agendas moving forward. Just to get your opinions moving forward. Just to get your your political campaign moving forward, so to speak. In the church... You want, to, you want to be an elder and pursue eldership because you want to shepherd God's people for the glory of Christ and for the edification of, that, of the church of Christ. That's why you do it. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. He was speaking in the context of people being anxious. For the things that they think that they need. And Jesus says, your heavenly father knows what you need. Does he not provide for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air? He knows what you need. You are of more value than those things. Instead of worrying about those things of the world and possessions and toys, accumulation of those things that are never going to make you happy, seek Christ's righteousness and his kingdom. And all of those things, if you need them, God will provide them for you. That's what Jesus said. An elder understands that and struggles and fights to make sure that his mind is focused on the kingdom realities of life, not on the earthly things. And that is a tr- that's true for every single one of us, beloved. Our mind should not be on the things of this earth. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, on above, the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, right? Setting our minds on those eternal realities and living in the present on earth in the light of those realities. He is also finally to be self-controlled in verse 8. Self-controlled. A compound word made up of two words, in and power. He's a man who possesses control of oneself. This refers to self-mastery over one's sinful desires and sinful pleasures. The word was often used of an athlete's self-discipline. To one who exercises self-denial for the purpose of achieving a goal or, or winning the race or winning the prize. Self-control is so important. It is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit of God empowers us to be people who are walking in self-control. A man who practices self-control is not a slave to his own desires, a slave to his own drives, a slave to his own appetites. I love what one theologian writes and says, He who cannot rule himself must not rule others. He who cannot rule himself must not rule others. See, the man who, who desires to serve as an elder is a man who is characterized by denial of self. A denial of self. He is a man who walks by the Spirit, if you will. Who yields his, himself and his life to the Spirit's leading. And we know the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. That's why Colossians 3.16 says, let, your, uh, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it make its home in your heart. Because the Spirit accesses the Word of God in your mind and in your heart and in your thoughts. Getting you to put aside your fleshly desires and pursue loving obedience to the Lord. 
when you think about it, self-control really is the practice of every believer, right? You remember when you were, before coming to Jesus Christ? What was your life characterized by? I know what mine was. Ephesians 4.19 describes me. It says that we were giving ourselves to, over to sensuality. Giving ourselves, like, what, joyfully to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So we pursued a life of sensuality, a life of sin, of indulgence, with greediness. We weren't content. We got more and more and more and more and more. It's not to satisfy our desire, our fleshly desires more. And we still were greedy. We wanted more, beloved. We never had enough. Why? Because nothing in life apart from Christ can satisfy you, you understand. Nothing can. Only Jesus can satisfy your heart. Only Jesus can bring life and meaning and purpose to you. Only he can do that. Not the pursuit of any selfish pleasure. But that was what we were characterized before Christ. Pursuing after these things that we thought would earn or get us happiness and joy. And they didn't. We were left wanting. Titus 3 verse 3 describes us again. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You see, we were not concerned about self-denial, beloved, about denying ourselves of selfish pleasures, but we were full board running towards fulfillment of our selfish appetites. That's why if that describes you today, if you don't see any sense of desire of, of struggle, of fight against sin in your life and the power of the Spirit, you need to be concerned. If you don't even want to be holy, if you don't even want to be set apart, if you don't want God to change you, you ought to be asking yourself, what was it that I did that, at what, that point in time when I made some, some profession of faith? Was that saving faith? Because the child of God wants to be more and more like His Heavenly Father. He who has been saved understands it because of the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for us. We want to now display the character of our Heavenly Father out of gratitude and love for what He's done for us. So the elder in God's church is to be a man who is to have self-control. He denies himself of, or denies himself of those things that are in fulfillment of his desires and drives and appetites. Now he's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And how do we expect people in the church to have self-control and to practice self-control if we as leaders don't do that, you see? If we as leaders don't do that. Let me ask you men a real pinpointed question. When nobody is watching you, when nobody's monitoring you, maybe your wife is not there or roommates or friends or whatever, when nobody is holding you accountable, what kind of person are you? What are you looking at? What are your eyes filled with? What is your mind saturated with? Are you a man who gives in to your temptation? Or are you a man who practices self-control in those moments when nobody's watching you from a human standpoint? One of the great works that you ought to read, and I think I've mentioned this before, if I'm not mistaken, is Stephen Charnock's The Existence and Attributes of God. And he has a great chapter in there on, on the, the Christian, the believer, being God-conscious, cultivating God-consciousness. And what he gets at is the fact that God is always there. There's really 
No point in time when you ever do anything in secret. You understand? Secrecy doesn't really exist. It's a lie from the world. You can never do anything in secret because God is always there. And I guess the world, because they suppress the knowledge of God and suppress the fact that God exists and He has authority over their lives, of course they speak about secrecy. But as Christians, beloved, we understand there is no such thing as secret. You do everything in the light of the presence of Almighty God, you understand. He's always there. And so when we as men, but for all of us, are in secret, do we recognize and are we conscious of the fact that God is watching us so that we practice self-control and we say no to our sin and we say yes to Jesus Christ in those moments? The elder is to lead the charge in this of cultivating a God consciousness so that, so that as he leads and shepherds in the church, he is mindful of the fact that ultimately he's accountable to God. And no human accountability, any of us can hide things from each other, beloved, on the human, human level. But we cannot hide anything from Almighty God. Amen? We cannot. And that's a great comfort. Yes, it's a fierce, uh, fearful reality, but it's also comforting to me because I know He's my Heavenly Father who's watching to discipline me if I, if I am not walking in the way that I ought to be walking because He loves me and He wants me to, be, to find joy in Him, not joy in other things. That may promise satisfaction for the moment, but ultimately lead to, to destruction and harm to other people, including myself. That is the case for all of us as believers. So this is the Christ-like character on the positive side of those who are to shepherd God's church. He's not a man who's perfect, not a man who is without any blemish, not a man who doesn't struggle, but he's a man who is above reproach. That's the overarching characteristic. This is a man with a heart for God, beloved. And it fleshes itself out in those character qualities and the character qualities that are really who Jesus Christ is. Is this possible? Say, man, I don't know about this. Again, this is really hard. And the fact of the matter is it's impossible apart from Jesus Christ. But it is very possible by the grace of God. Amen? By the grace of God. Otherwise, He wouldn't give us these commands and these instructions, you see. We need to be relying upon His grace to be these types of individuals. And this is why if you, have, you are not saved... If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you need to understand that you cannot please God or earn His favor by pursuing these things in the flesh. And by in the flesh, I mean apart from Jesus Christ, by trusting in Jesus Christ. You cannot be good enough. The standard is perfection, you see. Perfect righteousness. And the only perfect God-man is Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord and Savior of the universe. You must trust in Him. Your response should be to seek His forgiveness. Seek to be reconciled to your Maker. Turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Apart from Him, you cannot do anything that would earn you any acceptance before a holy God, you understand. And for the rest of us, while these, beloved, as I said, are absolutely necessary for leaders and essential, and they must be a part of of, of God's leaders in His church, they are to be qualities that you and I must pursue as well. God wants a holy church, beloved. He wants a holy people, a people set apart, who display the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel in the way that we live before a world that desperately needs to see authentic Christianity, beloved. The power of the gospel in our very lives and the way that we live. Amen? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, 
Help us to be these types of shepherds in your church, beginning with me. Father, fan the flame in the hearts of men, older and younger in this church, to cultivate this type of character. And that from those men would surface men who have the heart of a shepherd and gifted to be shepherds in your church, who, Lord, care for their families and are devoted to the church along with their families. Father, do that amongst us by your grace. And I pray for a congregation that is committed to upholding these things, to walking in holy conduct in light of the gospel, having visited us, that we would display the gospel to a world that is hopeless, that, Lord, may, may seem happy for a time, but in the end, Lord, sin is bitter as wormwood. It doesn't lead to fulfillment. It doesn't lead to eternal happiness. Oh, Father, help us to display the gospel in the way that we live, in the transforming power of your spirit and your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.